0: On this edition of Update One, we'll hear from Emily Harding of the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. She previously worked for the Senate Intelligence Committee and the White House National Security Council, among other intelligence-related positions. I'm Irv Chapman, a longtime member of the National Press Club, and our subject is Afghanistan. Emily, for years, we've heard about the danger of Afghanistan again becoming a base of operations for al-Qaeda. And then as the evacuation got underway, we heard warnings that the Islamic State was rearing its head and targeting the airport. Those warnings proved all too real. What do you know about the relationships between the Taliban and al-Qaeda and the Islamic State?
1: The relationship between the Taliban and Islamic State has been one of competition um, it's been fraught. They, they are not friends. We know that the Taliban and has tried to push the Islamic State out of their territory, and the Islamic State views the Taliban as not extreme enough from them. Uh, on the other hand, though, the Taliban's relationship with al-Qaeda is very close. Not only did they house al-Qaeda in the run-up to 9-11, uh, those two groups have intermarried. They have formed long-time relationships. Uh, The leaders of of the two are are very close.
0: Is al-Qaeda going to try to become part of the new leadership of Afghanistan?
1: It's entirely possible. The Taliban has had 20 years to reject al-Qaeda and they haven't done it. Um, They are making certain promises that Afghanistan will never be used as a safe haven for a terrorist group and no attack against a foreign power will ever emanate out of Afghanistan. But it's very hard to take them seriously when they say that, given the close ties between them and al-Qaeda.
0: Well, the U.S. and allies suggest they have leverage over the Taliban because of its need for budget support. And others say the Taliban can raise cash as a transit hub for South Asian trade and from continuing to grow opium poppies. And therefore, they don't care what we think about them and al-Qaeda.
1: What's your view? If it's leverage, it's extremely weak leverage. Uh, The Taliban, I don't think, care at all what the international community think of them. And as with every successful insurgency, the next six months, year, two years, is really about infighting among the group, where they're all angling for position as opposed to each other. Um, There's not a lot of space there for for dealings with the international community. And they're going to care a lot less about whether they can bank in New York than who is competing with who on any given day. I think that they have plenty of, of resources from the opium trade to raw, raw minerals and things. We've already seen China and Russia indicate they're perfectly willing to work with the Taliban.
0: Well, in fact, Afghanistan has mineral wealth, which takes investment to extract. Is China going to be the investor?
1: I think so. I think China's going to be a big winner out of this entire situation. Not only are they already buying their way into Afghan resources... They also have a very small border with Afghanistan and a big Muslim population. And I'm guessing that there's going to be some kind of accommodation between China and the Taliban so that the business of Afghanistan stays on the Afghani side of the border.
0: Chinese have been tweeting all over Asia that if Taiwan expects America to help in a crisis, look what happened to Afghanistan. And the president of Ukraine is getting his White House visit at last. What is your take on all this?
1: The Chinese and the Russians are making hay out of this moment. Uh, They are crowing. China is using every opportunity to point out to Taiwan and other countries in Southeast Asia that maybe America is not a steadfast ally. The Russians are using this to attempt to drive wedges between us and the Europeans. The Biden State Department has a lot of work to do to go around and reassure some of our allies. I think it's doable. Um, I think that actions are going to speak louder than words, and we're going to need to come up with some creative actions to reassure them.
0: In all of our recent overseas military efforts, our presidents have said we're not nation building. But when you reorganize an economy to promote private enterprise, an education system, to promote science and get women involved, a free press, elections, so on, isn't that nation building? And haven't you created a whole new class of people intent on a whole new way of life?
1: I think that was the goal. We were always seeking to create an Afghan government that could stand on its own two feet. And I do think, you know, there are a lot of people out there saying the last 20 years have accomplished nothing, but that new society that you're talking about is something of an accomplishment. I mean, there are women who have been working. There are girls who have gone to school. There is some elements of a functioning society, and the Taliban would be wise to keep it.
0: Does that mean that the promises that they're making to allow women to work, keep people who've been trained for jobs in those jobs. They're going to keep those promises and not turn the clock all the way back to where they were 20 years ago, let alone an earlier century.
1: I think it's very hard to say. I mean, this is the same group with a lot of the same leadership that was in existence in the late 90s and just committing terrible atrocities against women. And while the outward facing elements of the Taliban have been saying that they are definitely going to allow women to continue to work, and they're definitely going to allow women to continue to go to school. I have little faith that, number one, they're going to follow through on those promises, and number two, that the Taliban central control, such as it is, has any command and control over what happens out in the, the more distant provinces. I can't imagine that there aren't some smaller Taliban leadership cadres that are saying, no, no, we're going to implement Sharia law the way that we see it, And any kind of central authority in Kabul can, you know,
0: take their views and shove them. Well, there have been some forecasts that civil war is in the offing, or could be. Is that likely to be the case?
1: I think it's possible. Um, In my previous role as an intelligence analyst, I would have said something along the lines of, with moderate confidence, there's going to be a lot of infighting in Afghanistan, or among the Taliban and maybe some of the other tribal groups. I would say with low confidence that that could proceed to a civil war, but that's exactly the kind of thing that you see happen post-insurgency, or when when a group that's been united against a common enemy suddenly loses that common enemy. And in Afghanistan in particular, these groups are going to be angling for resources, they're going to be angling for high-ranking positions— They're going to be looking for any opportunity that they can to grab some of the the wealth of the country.
0: Well, about your background on intelligence, why was the consensus
1: the White House chose to believe so far off base? There wasn't necessarily a consensus that was way off base. The intelligence reporting was saying there could be a rapid collapse, then that if the Americans withdrew support, then that would lead to a potential collapse of the, the Kabul government. The timelines were a range. I mean, in intelligence work, you never say that this thing is going to happen on this date because there's just too much uncertainty in the world. But the ranges were 18 months if certain things happen, six months if other things happen, maybe as little as a month if other things happen. And part of the issue with intelligence is that it can be sort of a a self-fulfilling prophecy. So intelligence reporting writes that There are indications that the the central government in Kabul is weak and that if the Americans pull back, then it's possible it collapses. Policymakers then say, "Okay, well, we're pulling out and that can do things like speed the collapse. So I think that the intelligence reports were actually pretty good. No intelligence report is a crystal ball, but... I do think that there was adequate warning to foresee something like this happening.
0: Well, does that mean that the decisions to delay the evacuation didn't have any basis in intelligence? But in fact, what was their basis?
1: I'm not sure. I don't understand the president's assertions that they weren't processing visas because people didn't want to leave. Just because you're processing a visa doesn't mean that you have to actually use it and leave right away. They could have had that underway. I think that the administration probably assumed that even if most of Afghanistan fell, that Kabul would hold at least for a while, long enough to do an orderly withdrawal. They were making certain assumptions about the status of Kabul that turned out to just be way off base.
0: To what extent do you think the Taliban will want to keep foreign non-government organizations going to help them feed their people and develop their economy?
1: Oh, I suspect they'll want to keep the, the foreign NGOs in there. Um, I heard an interview with one of the UNICEF folks on the ground the other day, and she was saying, you know, we've been here for 60 years, we're gonna stay. Um, It's our mission to try and and feed and help the, the people of Afghanistan, no matter who's in charge at the top. And I mean, frankly, the Taliban probably need them. One interesting development of the last week or so was the Taliban reaching out to the Turks to ask them to come and help do things like run the airport, provide technical support, Even if they do fulfill every single one of their promises about keeping people in place, they're still going to need technical help to do some very basic things.
0: Could the Taliban have persevered, if not for their Pakistan safe haven?
1: No. One of the true tenets of um, insurgency analysis is that an insurgency is much more likely to succeed if they have help from an outside power, and then not only that, but help from an adjacent outside power... I think that Pakistan is is largely to blame for this, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with them now that they're the dog that caught the car.
0: U.S. troops didn't suffer casualties after President Trump set a date for their departure. President Biden insists if he delayed the departure further, the troops would again be targeted and would have to be augmented for force protection. What is your reading?
1: I mean, that may very well be true. I could see the Taliban agreeing to the deal that we will leave on a certain date and we will hold off on attacking you until that date. I do think that had we decided to stay longer, we would have had to have been ready for additional Taliban attacks. But what I don't buy is Biden's assertion or his administration's assertion that it would have to be a massive surge in capability to combat those Taliban attacks. I think that we could have said to our Afghan allies, we're not leaving yet because we know that things need to be done before we leave. And we're going to stay in Kabul. We're going to keep a smaller footprint on the ground. We're going to keep Bagram. Um, and I think that the Taliban, you know, they, <laughs> one of their major advantages is that they're very patient. They've been patient for the last 20 years waiting for their moment. I think they probably would have been patient for a little while longer to not completely tank the deal.
0: You've indicated that it was kind of a hapless situation that we faced in Afghanistan all of this while, and the pullout was precipitated. But what do we do
1: now? Biden has been talking a lot about an over-the-horizon intelligence capability. I think that's too rosy a view of what's possible. Um, we're going to need to be using standoff collection capabilities to try to keep an eye on any terrorist threats that might be emerging. We're going to have to turn to our allies around the world and say we need to keep the pressure up on the Taliban to actually follow through on these promises, to be kind to women and girls, to let them continue to grow in their roles in Afghanistan. I I think that, as we talked about before, the levers that we have over the Taliban are extremely limited. And we've got to be looking hard at both Iran and at Pakistan just to be sure that they're not using these things as leverage against us.
0: The Taliban are... Only the latest bad guys who are riding high. President Biden keeps stressing the competition between democracies and autocracies, but the bad guys are gaining in Belarus, Russia, China, Myanmar, Turkey, Thailand, and even in putative democracies like Hungary, Poland, and India. Is there any reason for optimism, do you think?
1: I I am an eternal optimist. I will always find reasons for optimism. I think that that is a trend line that has been building for quite a few years. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that Biden has argued about our presence in Afghanistan is that we have been too focused on the counterterrorism fight and we have been somewhat blind to things like China's rise and this, this rise of autocracies. Um, it's something that we definitely need to show leadership on in the world. I am a firm believer in American leadership globally. Does that mean we need to be the world's policeman? No, but does it mean that we need strong alliances, that we need to reassure our NATO allies that we are going to be there for them, that we can look at Taiwan and say, yes, we are your ally? I think all those things need to happen. Um, I choose to be an optimist because America has been through all kinds of things and is, has come out the other side pretty well. Um, I actually spent part of my morning this morning down at the Lincoln Memorial with a group of military fellows who are, are spending a year at our think tank and we went down there because we wanted to kick off their year in DC right. We wanted to talk about you know, the founding of this country, the refounding of this country under Lincoln and those democratic ideals that really inform who we are. And our speaker, who was actually Tom Carrico, one of the, the folks in my think tank, uh, and he was talking about how every great step forward in American history has been about greater equality, has been about resetting who should have a say in the way that they are governed. And I believe that's not a purely American truth. I believe that's a truth for most people around the world, that they also want to say in, in how they get to live their life and how they are governed. So I see that, that fundamental human truth as my main cause for optimism.
0: Emily Harding of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Irv Chapman at the National Press Club in Washington. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast, that's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.